Welcome to the Literate Caveman Podcast. This podcast offers reviews of excellent books that you may not be familiar with. I am your host, Chad Blake, and today we are continuing our review of C.S. Lewis's book, The Four Loves. The premise of the book is, in the first place, making an important distinction between like and love in English, which we discussed in the first episode. And then the rest of the book addresses four distinct forms of love, which Lewis gets from the Greek language. In today's episode, we are discussing eros, which we could also call romance or erotic love. Now, on this read-through, getting ready for this podcast, I found this chapter frustrating. By that, I don't mean in a bad way. I just found it frustrating. I think if I had a young friend who was considering reading this book, especially a young friend who was either a newlywed or engaged, I might counsel skipping this chapter. Or, at the very least, getting some time under their belt and then coming back to it in a couple of years. Allow me to explain. Since we are doing book reviews, I'll pull from a couple of other books to get my concerns across. In a book called Hagakuru, a very interesting Japanese book that I will review at some point, the narrator cautions against young men developing an interest in religion. He was concerned that developing a religious life at a young age can make men too cautious, that a spiritual life was best cultivated after a man had gotten his career and his family in order. In the translation I have read, He advises that young men should focus on gathering their strength, as he put it, until they are about 40 years of age or so. After that, he believed that cultivating a spiritual life was a healthy and natural pursuit. Another example, this one quite different, comes from Plato. In The Republic, the author puts forth his case that young men should not be exposed to the Odyssey. If you don't know, the Odyssey was a very popular poem. It still is, but in that time, it was common for people to go to a public place and watch someone perform the Iliad and the Odyssey. Just one one actor on a stage using masks to perform different characters. Now, this is interesting, and it is something that struck me when I first read The Republic probably 20 years ago. I feel like Plato missed his own lesson. He admits that as a young man, the Odyssey excited him and made him want to accomplish great things. But as an older man, he was concerned that a certain scene towards the end of the story would make young men, and I quote, fear death more than slavery, end quote. Now, this was a valid concern in those days, because if your city got sacked, it could quite literally be the end of your world and everything you knew and cared about. However, it struck me as interesting that he lost sight of how the story affected him when he was young versus when he was older. And as an older man, his fear and caution overcame his other impulses. What we get from both of these examples is a sharp contrast between how younger and older people process the same experiences, or in this case, the same literature. Now, I am in no way suggesting that young people should not pursue a spiritual life, but I think there is some wisdom in Hegekuru, and I think there is a ratio of encouragement to caution that needs to be considered when advising young people. Or, for that matter, anyone who is new in a relationship compared to someone who has been in a relationship for a few years— I'll try to give one more quick example, and then I'll get back into the text for today. As a strength and conditioning coach and as a self-defense instructor, I have worked with about as wide a range of clients and students as possible, as young as five years old and as mature as early 70s. There are more similarities and differences between the two, but it is more like an overlap than a copy. What is appropriate for a five-year-old is not necessarily appropriate for a senior citizen and vice versa. Again, there is a lot of overlap, and to an outsider, the lessons or the workouts might look identical, but I can assure you there are some stark differences. What I am getting at 
is later in life, especially on subjects like love and romance, mature people can be a bit cynical, even hopeless. Now, I don't feel like C.S. Lewis has a hopeless attitude, but after working through this chapter, I don't think I would recommend it to someone who was just getting into a relationship. I think someone who had been married for a while could read it and not even see what I am alluding to due to life experience. Anyway, take that with a grain of salt. I myself am a bachelor and, as the name of my podcast admits, I am a caveman. So, let's get back into the text. Lewis opens the chapter by making a distinction between general sexuality and sexuality within the context of a relationship. In general, sexuality, as he puts it, within Eros, not because of any moral dilemma, but because that is not his purpose. He explains that he will use the term Venus to describe the carnal or physically sexual element that exists within Eros. For the rest of the text, he uses Eros as a general term for love, and Venus when he is being specific about the physical aspect that, can be, that it can exist in the subject. Right after he makes this distinction, he makes what I feel is a very interesting point, and I think anyone who has fallen in love will relate to it. If you have never fallen in love or are confused about what love is, you might not quite understand the quote I'm about to share or disagree with it. He explains that some scientists want to believe that what he calls eros is a later complication that develops from the biological drive of Venus. I will quote from the text real quick. There may be those who have first felt mere sexual appetite for a woman and then gone on at a later stage to quote-unquote fall in love with her, but I doubt if this is at all common. Very often, what comes first is simply a delightful preoccupation with the beloved, a general, unspecified preoccupation with her in her totality. A man in this state really hasn't leisure to think of sex. He is too busy thinking of a person. The fact that she is a woman is far less important than the fact that she is herself. End of quote. Now, he is not claiming there is no sexual interest in a healthy love, I think what he is arguing against is a view that love is primarily biological and driven by a need to reproduce. Sexual desire, he says, without eros, wants it, the thing in itself, the act of sex. By distinction, eros wants the beloved. By contrast, a man who is out looking for a hookup or to get laid is not seeking a woman, but a physical pleasure for which a woman happens to be a necessary piece of equipment. How much he cares about the woman may be judged five minutes after the fact. A somewhat harsh but accurate statement from the text is, quote, one does not keep the carton after one has smoked the cigarettes, end quote. In contrast, Eros makes a man really want, not a woman in the general sense, but one particular woman. I am going to quote the text again here. He says, without Eros, sexual desire, like every other desire, is a fact about ourselves. Within Eros, it is rather about the beloved. Simply he is saying that without Eros, sexual desire is about a personal urge or a need. Eros brings something else into it. In the past, I have described this distinction as a difference between lust and intimacy. Again, if you have never fallen in love, you may not relate to this. Or it is possible you feel you have fallen in love but disagree. I think modern society really convolutes love and relationships in general. Others have said there is a difference between seeking pleasure and seeking happiness. While I think that statement can overlap with this subject, it has a broader application than, than just examining Eros. From this point in the text, Lewis submits his own moral views on the subject. He says that up to this point, he was working to describe, not to evaluate the subject. 
He begins by explaining that previous moral theologians believed that enjoying sex within marriage was soul-destroying. He argues that this view is not scriptural, citing that in 1 Corinthians 7.5, St. Paul was not dissuading his converts from marriage because of intimacy, but due to the preoccupation of constantly considering one's partner. From here, there's a long section describing what he saw as the current state of Venus during the later stages of his lifetime. It seems that popular thought and psychology of the day was turning sex into both an over-sexualized and at the same time a very serious subject. A quick quote from the book might help with this last point. He says, I could believe that some young couples now go to it with the complete works of Freud, Kraft Ebbing, Havelock Ellis, and Dr. Stopes spread out on bed tables all around them, unquote. He cautions about being overly serious about sex. He says, banish play and laughter from the bed of love and you may let in a false goddess, end quote. He further cautions that Venus recalls a, mis- a mischievous spirit, far more elf than deity, can be ruthless if taken too seriously. I find this section difficult to relate to, mostly because he seems to view the topic through the lens of poetry and literature. For me, this makes this chapter of the book the most dated, or we may say outdated. I do not know many people who read poetry for pleasure, and the ones I have known have not done so to the extent that they express themselves so exclusively through it. I think even people I know who have read Chaucer or Shakespeare have mostly done so because it was required by a literature class. I do have a couple of close friends who have read classic literature for recreation or self-improvement, and I count myself among those. But even a friend of mine who was an English professor at a college does not frame so much of his thought through a poetic lens. I like literature. I've read through the Iliad and the Odyssey more than once. I even named an Australian shepherd Odysseus and a second one Diomedes. I've read Chaucer, most of Shakespeare's plays, and I am known to bring up references to Herodotus, Thucydides, or even Xenophon in conversation and in various things I've written over the years. Still, I find Lewis's reliance on poetry as a metaphor for Eros difficult to relate to. Getting back to the text, he spends a bit of time emphasizing that he finds something comic in the physicality of Eros, and he feels this is important. I think he feels if taken too seriously, it can either be too intense or lead to a kind of spiritual frustration. After this section of the text, Lewis gets to an interesting breakdown of the different views that have been held of the human body over the centuries in Western literature. He begins with the aesthetic pagans who believe the body was a horrible source of shame and temptation. A quote-unquote tomb for the soul and other strongly disparaging remarks. Secondly, there were the neo-pagans who I guess were nudists, and he mentions again the sufferers from dark gods, who believed the body was a glorious thing. I suspected hedonism might be another thing we could attribute to that second category. Thirdly, he quotes St. Francis, who called his own body Brother Ass. For his part, Lewis liked this third view the best, although he does say it is possible that all three views are potentially defensible. The ass, which if you do not know is an old term for a donkey, he feels is a good fit because, as he puts it, quote, no one in their right mind can either revere or hate a donkey, end quote. Quoting from the text, he says it is a useful, sturdy, lazy, obstinate, patient, lovable, and infuriating beast, end quote. 
He feels between these three very different viewpoints, the view of St. Francis is the healthiest. I feel a need to point out that years ago I heard someone say that the very fact that God made physical matter is evidence that God likes physical matter. If you believe that God made the world and that God made the human race in his image, it could be very disrespectful to view the human body as the tom of the soul. Getting back to the text, there is a long section following the cautions against being too serious about Venus or Eros, about cautioning against one lover taking too severely the dominant attitude and the other taking too severely the submissive. It does say he believed some element of this can be harmless and wholesome, but he also felt it could be taken too far. He felt there was spiritual, spiritual danger in this. He says there is an element of ritual in Venus that can be thought of in an older, more archaic sense. Further, he felt there was a ritual or even masquerade element to what he recognizes most people feel is the most real experience two people can have. He supports this by explaining that the word naked was originally a past participle. Quoting again from the text, he says, The naked man was the man who had undergone the process of naking, that is, of stripping. Unquote. A little further on, he says, quote, Nudity emphasizes common humanity and soft pedals what is individual. In that way, we are, more and we are more ourselves when clothed. By nudity, the lovers cease to be solely John and Mary. The universal he and she are emphasized. You could almost say they put on nakedness as a ceremonial robe or as a costume for a, for a charade, end quote. Now, I understand what he is saying, but on this I do not feel agreement with him. This could be because I have spent too much time around physical culture, or because as a strength and conditioning coach, I have a different view of things like physique, posture, and movement. Or it could be living in a cooler climate for most of his life. C.S. Lewis was used to people wearing a few layers of clothing most of the year. I live in a climate that gets rather warm and tends to be humid. Plus, I have spent a lot of time in gyms where your average gym goer might just be in shorts and a t-shirt. Or, on some unfortunate but memorable occasions, quite a bit less. Anyway, most of the time, I feel like I connect with what Lewis wrote about. In this specific instance, I have a difficult time selecting sections that I feel were useful to discuss. At this point in the text, Lewis turns from his discussion of Venus back to the larger subject of Eros. He makes the interesting statement that as Venus within Eros does not really aim at pleasure, so Eros does not aim at happiness. His argument for this is that if two people are in love, and other people advise that their marriage will be an unhappy one, and while it were hurt to separate, down the road they will both be happier, he says most people will put this advice aside and take the chance, preferring to let their hearts break together than apart. He asserts that if the voice within does not say this, it is not the voice of Eros. From here, he says that humor plays a part in Eros as it does with Venus. From outside of a relationship, he says this humor can sometimes appear strange, even pathetic. But he says that, quote, until they have a baby to laugh at, lovers are always laughing at each other, end quote. From here, he moves on to a caution about Eros in general. The danger, he says, is that Eros can sound to the beloved like the voice of God himself. He lists the total commitment, reckless disregard of happiness, and transcendence of self-regard as things which conf confuse someone who is in love. It is a potential problem because these feelings and impulses can lead to evil as well as to good. He cautions against the idea that only obviously bad relationships can lead to bad outcomes. Sometimes a love that seems heartbreakingly sincere can go bad. After this, he addresses a couple of schools of thought about love other than his own. The first he addresses is Plato, 
who taught that falling in love was the process of recognizing on earth souls which have been singled out for one another in a previous or celestial existence. This sounds similar to what followers of astrology would call a twin soul. Although I could be wrong about that, I am not an expert on any kind of astrology. The second school of thought he addresses sounds to me like eugenics. According to Merriam-Webster, eugenics is the practice or advocacy of controlled selective breeding of human populations, such as sterilization, to improve the population's genetic composition. Now, this was a popular topic among scientists and world leaders prior to World War I. It persisted into World War II and finally fell out of favor after it was recognized that Hitler used eugenics to justify the Nazi attempts to eradicate the Jewish people. The roots of eugenics were in what was called social Darwinism. This kind of thinking, this philosophy of breeding the quote-unquote Superman, led to the forced sterilization of many Americans without their knowledge. According to a two- 2003 article published in the LA Times by Peter Irons, between 1909 and 1964, it is estimated that some 64,000 people were sterilized without their consent by doctors across the United States in state-run hospitals. 30 different states in the U.S. had sterilization laws, and the last one was not repealed until 1979. I am just going to say that the next time you hear someone say, follow the science, Bear in mind, people have done horrible things to each other in the name of science. Obviously, when science is conducted properly, it leads to the betterment of the human race and the world that we steward. But I would caution you against ever accepting statements like follow the science to justify going against your conscience. Now forgive me for the rabbit trail and the brief history lesson. I invite you to look up eugenics and early 1900s forced sterilization if you want to learn more about that. Returning to our text, Lewis does not go into detail about eugenics, and he doesn't even use that term. Although I am sure he was aware of the movement, but he does say that if that kind of thinking, he calls it life force and evolutionary appetite, was a real functional thing, it would have shown up earlier in human history, not when some scientists and quasi-philosophers thought it up. He goes on to say that for a Christian, neither of these philosophies are useful. For the Christian will not worship the so-called life force and will know nothing of a previous existence before birth. I'm not 100% on that last point, but I am a caveman after all, not a theologian. In the next section of the test, C.S. Lewis cautions against following eros without judgment. Quoting from the text, We must not give unconditional obedience to the voice of eros when he speaks most like a god. Neither must we ignore or attempt to deny the godlike quality. This love is really and truly like love himself. By this he means Christ. In it, there is a real nearness to God by resemblance, but not, therefore, necessarily, a nearness of approach. After a little more discussion of this, he goes on to explain how theologians expressed concern about Eros turning into idolatry. Lewis takes a slightly different view. He believed the theologians were concerned that lovers would idolize each other, but he feels it is more likely that lovers will idolize Eros itself. Being in love, as it were, with being in love. This leads to an interesting discussion about how people who are in love can have a tendency to justify their actions because of that same love. There can be a martyrdom, or the perception of martyrdom, in an unhealthy love that is dangerous. 
He ends the chapter with a prolonged caution about how love, while making promises unasked for, can lead to disappointment if not kept in a healthy frame of mind. That is the end of my review on the chapter on Eros. I'm going to take a quick moment to return to the rabbit trail I got started on with my assertion that statements such as follow the science ignore what science is in fact about. Understand my opinion on this subject is professional, not amateur. I have worked as a strength and conditioning coach and a nutrition coach for over 20 years. For the bulk of my career, I have spent about an hour a day reviewing peer-reviewed studies and textbooks on a wide range of health and performance-related subjects. One of my favorite quotes from a textbook in my personal library is, Studies do not prove anything. This textbook, if you are curious, is Research Methods in Physical Activity, and it is worth reading for anyone who has an interest in how the scientific process should be applied. Science asks questions. It should continually ask questions. And when science asks enough questions, it may provide direction, but mostly it provides more questions. When anyone tells you science has conclusively proven something, you need to ask to look at the data before you accept that statement as a fact. Typically, people who make this claim will not be willing to provide any data. If they do, and if the data they are presenting is from a single, isolated study, that is not a large enough sample size to draw broad conclusions. Just remember, science asks questions. Always questions. I will leave you with a very brief account of a time when the expert opinion was that riding on a passenger train would kill you. During the 1800s, when rail lines were going up across America, doctors and scientists asserted that people who rode on the rails would die due to a lack of oxygen. They claimed that if a human exceeded a speed of 30 or 35 miles per hour, the air would not be able to keep up and the passengers would suffocate. We could certainly do an entire series on foolish things people have claimed in the name of science. Perhaps one day I will. For now, this episode of The Literate Caveman is over. Thank you for listening, and go read a book.